0: If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 2 tonight. We'll be looking at verses 12 to 18. Philippians 2, starting at verse 12. Therefore, my beloved... holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's ask for the Lord's help now. Father in heaven, as we uh, come to these words, we pray that you would help us. Help us to understand them, but not only cognitively to understand uh, the words on the page, Lord, but also uh, to have them penetrate our our heart and to shape our our will and our desire. There are many things that would resist your word here because um, by our sinful natures, we would resist holiness. Perhaps, Lord, we have had bad experiences with the word or um, misunderstandings about what it is. Our, our flesh, our old man, would rage against it. And yet, Lord, I pray that you would help us, that you would help me to speak truthfully, clearly, faithfully, and that you would help us here so that we would understand and carry out the call that you've given to us as your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we come to these words, we're in the middle of Paul's letter from prison, and he's been urging the Philippians to... Uh, live in a manner uh, worthy of the gospel. It's a a church that he dearly loves and and appreciates. He's got a warm relationship with them, uh, and he's calling them to live in this manner worthy of the gospel, striving side by side uh, for the sake of the gospel, united and with gospel courage. And to this end, Paul has been urging the Philippians to a humble, selfless service of one another, which they can do because of the comforts of the gospel because they share in the mind of Christ and because of the example which Christ has set before them. And our passage today is meant to draw a conclusion from these previous verses. Therefore, Paul begins, my beloved, just as you've obeyed when I was with you, now obey in my absence. Paul's love and appreciation for the faith of the Philippians is clear as he calls them to a particular act of obedience. What is Paul calling the Philippians and by extension us to do? Paul commands the Philippians to the arduous, weighty, but God empowered work of holiness, which, as that happens, will cause them and us to grow in cheerful and sacrificial service to one another. So, our outline this evening is simple. First, we'll look at the work of holiness in general. And then the work of holiness in the church. Now in all the world, in all of human history, there is no message sweeter than the gospel. Because the gospel, a word which means uh, good news, it's the message that the Bible presents to us. Uh, uh, It's a message of grace. It's the message that we as Christians delight in. It's it's the fact that though we by nature are, are traitors and rebels against God, that we deserve eternal death, God has done something remarkable. He's given his son to die in our place and for our sins. In fact, just prior to our passage tonight, we read about how the son of God took on our humanity and he humbled himself to the point of death on the cross for us. Jesus paid the debt that our sins incurred. He paid the debt we couldn't pay. We deserve to be eternally condemned, to be canceled, to use today's vocabulary, but Jesus bore the punishment for us. And because of this history-changing event, any person, no matter how terrible your sin might be, you might receive divine forgiveness. And not only that, you might receive divine acceptance. A critical point of divergence between Christianity and other religions, though, is Uh, what we can do and what we must do in order to receive this deliverance. Whereas the expectation in in other worldviews is that we must do something or we must be something in order to to deserve such a rescue, the Bible says that we can't do anything to deserve it. We can't do anything to merit this rescue. Our default status is one of spiritual death. We can't do anything. No good work, work, no act of believing, We can't do anything to move us out of this state of spiritual death and into a state of spiritual life or salvation. God and God alone must do this work. We can't cause ourselves to come alive again. We can't cleanse ourselves. So hear this clearly. No work we do, no obedience we might give can merit or deserve our acceptance by God. Instead, God graciously gives us the gift of faith so that we're joined to Jesus and we can receive salvation entirely in Him. Now, this is to affirm the great truth articulated in the Protestant Reformation that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. So a wonderful truth. As Reformed Christians who love the gospel, we celebrate this. We revel in this truth. Romans 4, 5 says, uh, And to the one who does not work, but uh, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Or three times in Galatians 2, Paul says that a person is not justified by works of the law, but only by faith in Jesus Christ. And yet, we might be tempted to think that because of this, there is nothing left for the Christian to do but to trust in Christ. Now, there's a lot of truth in that statement insofar as we speak about deserving or meriting salvation. It would be wrong to say that we have to do anything to earn our salvation, or we have to do anything to sort of seal the deal. Jesus has paid it all. Given all of this, though, how are we supposed to make sense of Paul's call in verse 12? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It might sound like Paul is saying, Jesus has brought the ball to the four-yard line and you just need to run it into salvation's end zone. But as I've been saying, this can't be what Paul means. Since we're not saved by our works, then what is Paul doing commanding us to work out our salvation? Now, Paul's not calling us here Uh, To work for our salvation. He's not contradicting himself here. Only a few paragraphs later in in Philippians chapter 3, Paul's going to emphatically say there that no earthly achievement uh, that he could cling to would would, uh, give him a right standing with God. But we're saved only through faith uh, and the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. Paul, rather, here is speaking of a particular aspect of our salvation. He's speaking of our sanctification. We read from the Westminster Lar- Larger Catechism on sanctification. Uh, there's a definition as well printed in, in at the end of your bulletin so you can refer back to that if that's a, an unfamiliar word to you. But sanctification refers to this work of God's free grace whereby he makes us more and more holy. He makes us more and more to look like Jesus. And salvation in the Bible is about more than just escaping from the punishment of sin the cancer of sin that weakens us that that deprives us of our joy is in sanctification it's gradually uh, put into a, a lifelong trajectory of remission and so when paul here says work out your own salvation we should understand it as saying this that paul's calling us to work out the implications of our being saved from sin we're not working our way into salvation, but we're working out what it means to be a person who's saved by grace and saved from sin. So let me, let me use an example to help illustrate this. So almost 10 years ago, it was a very humid uh, July 22nd, I stood in a church in Ontario with uh, um, Suzanne, and there we said our wedding vows, and we were joined together in marriage. So on that day, I entered into the estate of, of marriage i was a married man but as most married people will tell you at least the honest ones uh, the implication of being married uh, was not immediately uh, apparent to me Uh, we had read books on marriage we talked about marriage I'd seen my parents marriage Uh, but there was something about standing within inside of our marriage and recognizing that marriage changes things marriage changes how you use your thursday nights didn't you know that It it changes what lampshades you buy, how you think about your money. It changes all sorts of things. And I just, I hadn't clued in until I'm standing here, right? So my thinking and my acting needed to catch up with the relationship that that I was now firmly committed to. I needed to work at thinking and acting like a married man. Well, in a similar way, Paul is saying to the Philippians, and he's saying, to those of us here who are Christians tonight, he's saying, work out the implications of being a saved person. Work out the implications of being a person who who is married to Jesus. Now, how did Paul expect the Philippians, how did he expect us to do that? Maybe some of you like me, we want a checklist, right? Just tell me what I'm supposed to do. But Paul doesn't give us that, likely because the specifics are going to vary from situation to situation, person to person. But what Paul does do is he gives us four principles that should guide our pursuit of holiness. And so I want to take a look at those four principles with you. The first principle, holiness takes work. Paul says that the pursuit of holiness, the pursuit of a consistent Christian life where what we confess begins to line up with how we live, that takes work. Effort. it takes work that's the main verb in verse 12 and it's a command work out act do the point is that we should see uh, um, uh, first of all is that being a christian takes effort and action on our part while christians receive grace and this is foundational this is essential that grace activates us to act in increasingly christ-like ways Several years ago, there was some back and forth online about uh, the question, what kind of effort does the Christian life require? One pastor said that the work of our sanctification consists primarily in our remembering the good news that we're accepted by God in Jesus. We need to remember our justification. The effort, the difficult effort of the Christian life is applied to remembering who we are in Christ, remembering what Christ has done for us. Still others have suggested that the effort called for in sanctification is the work of surrender. We need to surrender the agenda of our lives to God. We need to give up control. We need to uh, let go and let God, as the popular saying goes. We need to trust and we need to surrender. Now, undoubtedly, there is truth in both of these directions. Remembering who we are in Jesus, remembering that we're loved by him, that needs to bleed through every area of our pursuit of holiness. We're never going to outgrow the need to do this. That, that understanding, that reception of grace, that's going to fuel all our efforts. And similarly, surrender, surrendering to Christ's rule is required if we're going to increasingly look like Jesus. But the Bible's teaching on sanctification and the effort it requires, it's more comprehensive, a prescription, than just remember or surrender. If I'm tempted to drunkenness, Am I only supposed to remember and savor the fact that Jesus has credited me with his righteousness? Now certainly that would be a good thing for me to do. It might even be the chief thing I need to do. But is that all I need to do? Well, not according to Jesus. Jesus doesn't say in the Sermon on the Mount that if your right eye causes you to sin, remember your justification. He says, tear that eye out meaning that if I'm tempted to look at pornography on my phone, I may need to get rid of that smartphone. Or if I'm tempted uh, to to discontentment and to complaining, then I might need to get rid of my social media accounts and stop looking what people are doing in Florida. Elsewhere in the Bible, we see in the pursuit of holiness that we're we're called to uh, be active, to do things. We're called to put to death the deeds of the flesh. We're called to put on the virtues of Christ. We're called to strive to enter, the narrow, uh, by, the, enter by the narrow door. Uh, in Second Peter, Peter tells us to make every effort to add uh, this catalog of virtues to our faith. We're to put off our old self. We're to put on the new self, which is a, a conscious exchanging of, of habits, old sinful habits with new holy habits. We're called to press on toward the prize, Philippians three, and to imitate Godly examples uh, that are around us. We're called to practice what uh, we the example that we see in the apostles in Scripture. Here's how Kevin Young in his book "The Whole in Our Holiness," sums it up. He says, "When it comes to growth in godliness, trusting does not put an end to trying." Yes, we're called to remember. And to surrender, but we're also called to work by studying our Bibles, which is not always easy, by praying for God to make us holy, by pursuing relationships that will help us in our pursuit of godliness, to come up with a plan, what do I need to do on Saturday night so I can get to church on Sunday morning, by taking steps to flee sin, by coming up with plans for doing good. We're called to remember and rest in our justification, but we're also called to press on and to know more of Christ's transforming power at work in us. Sanctification, holiness, godliness, the working out of the implications of our salvation, it takes effort. Second principle, we must understand that our sanctification is a personal matter. Now by that, I don't mean that our sanctification is a private matter. That it's something else that no one else can speak to. I mean, Paul is speaking to this topic in the lives of the Philippians here. Other people can uh, speak to your growth in godliness, support it. They can have an interest in it. So I'm not saying that this is a, uh, it's not private. I, I'm not saying that it's a private thing, but it's a personal thing. It's a personal thing in that you have a personal responsibility to pursue it. Paul could not pursue sanctification on behalf of the Philippians. Now, Just as the Philippians had demonstrated an obedience before when Paul was with them, he says now that they should work out their own salvation. Your mom and your dad are not ultimately responsible for your holiness. Your pastors, your elders, your friends, your spouse cannot work out your salvation. They can help. They can support it. They can smack you upside the head when you need that they can cheer you on but they can't bring holiness to completion in you we don't move toward holiness like sort of sticks in a stream being uh, swept along but it takes a concerted personal effort to use the tools of holiness that god has given to us we need to take a personal responsibility to pursue holiness and to commit ourselves to it so have you done that are you committed To your own personal holiness. When it comes to our sanctification, our own personal holiness, the Philippians had a personal responsibility to pursue it, just as you and I do. We need to make a personal effort. Principle number three we see from this text that our sanctification should be pursued with fear and trembling. This isn't to say that Christians should be uh, fearful and doubting about whether they're saved or even whether we'll be sanctified. We're not supposed to go around like the fretful politician uh, on election night waiting to see whether we've actually won the vote. Paul's already told us in this letter the unshakable confidence that he has for the Philippians. In in Philippians uh, 1, verse 6, he says, And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And, And while there are genuine Christians who are sometimes assailed by doubts, We're not called to exist in a state of insecurity. Instead, Paul is saying that the pursuit of holiness here is a very serious work. We need to give a diligent attention to it. J.C. Ryle, in his excellent book entitled Holiness, a book that I would recommend to any young man or woman here, to anyone actually, has an entire chapter in which he unpacks why the pursuit of holiness is such a serious and important matter. He says that while holiness doesn't save us, it's commanded of us in 1 Thessalonians 4. It's the purpose for which Christ gave himself up for us that he might sanctify us, Ephesians 5. It's the evidence of our love for Christ because if we love Christ, we'll keep his commandments, John 14, verse 15. Striving for holy obedience brings comfort, it brings assurance to the life, to the, to, uh, the Christian, as we see in 1 John 2. Holiness is also our preparation for heaven, as Hebrews 12:14 tells us that we're to strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Our holiness does not and cannot save us. But I wonder, do you have a category still for holiness being important? How seriously might I ask you, do you take the pursuit of your own holiness? I'm not asking, are you perfect? The Bible does not have a category for you uh, being perfect yet. What I'm asking, is this pursuit of holiness a great and a weighty thing in your life? How seriously do you take growing in truthfulness and growing in a building speech in your relationships? How seriously do you take holiness in how you use your time at work or how you use your body? Since God cares deeply for our holiness, Jesus died to make us holy. We we need to come to this task with a, a great earnestness and a sense of its gravity. God commanded us that we should be holy since the one who called us is holy. We've been ransomed by the blood of Jesus to give our lives as an offering pleasing to the Lord. Perhaps I could get at the matter this way. Maybe it's helpful, maybe it's not. But if you truly believed your holiness was a matter of life and death, like actual life and death, if you didn't uh, grow in holiness uh, quickly, you would, you would die by the end of this week. Are there things that you would, you would plan about your week differently if you were truly gripped by, by how weighty holiness is? Are there things that you would not do and things that you would make sure to do because you recognize that this is a serious thing The pursuit of holiness we need to be serious about holiness so we see that sanctification requires effort it requires personal responsibility it's a serious business and now maybe you're here and you're thinking okay let's get to work i'm ready to do this or maybe you're thinking okay this seems uh, completely overwhelming uh and, and it's i'm not sure what the point is it's just too much We can either assume too much responsibility or we can assume too little ability. And this is where our fourth principle comes in. We can and should work out our salvation because it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Well, we're responsible actors in our sanctification, unlike our justification, we don't sanctify ourselves. Sanctification is as much a work of God as being born again Our regeneration, it's as much a work of God as being counted righteous by God. We can't make ourselves holy apart from God. But God, working through us as thinking and and acting beings, he makes us holy. Now, this is an important truth to understand. Who's at work in our sanctification? Am I working in sanctification or, or is God? Which is it? Well, the answer is both. While God is the one who sanctifies, God works by working through me. This is what we see in verses 12 and 13. Verse 12 shows us that we're active in our sanctification. Verse 13 tells us that God is the primary or ultimate actor. He works in us to to give us the desire, the will, to want to be holy in the first place. And not only that, but he actually empowers our exercise of holiness, So if you're growing in gentleness toward your kids, if you're growing in compassion for hurting people, if you're growing in self-control in an addiction, if you're growing in contentment and peace, praise God. If you're finding yourself hungrier for the word of God and and finding yourself suddenly wanting to go to the afternoon service and you're eager to to grow in your love for Jesus by uh, making use of the various means of grace, praise God. Verse 13 tells us that both the impulse toward that growth and the power to that growth itself are God's work through you and in you. Getting the the biblical balance right then, it destroys laziness. We know we're called to, spiritually speaking, roll up our sleeves and do the hard work of pursuing holiness. Getting the balance right also destroys self-reliance. We don't think that sanctification is, is up to us. We can't ultimately save ourselves either from sin's guilt or sin's power, but these verses also attack despair and passivity, and they should propel us to an optimistic working. It's possible for us to resign ourselves to certain sins just sort of uh, hanging around the rest of our life. They're like an unwanted roommate. They're just there. That's who I am. And while Paul's realistic about our struggle with sin, I mean, this is the guy who wrote Romans chapter 7. His words here are meant to infuse the Christian life with a great hope so that we, not just, so that we go, okay, we can do this because God is the one who works in me to will and to work. We can get to work pursuing holiness. Holiness seems hard. And guess what? It really is hard. And yet if you're a Christian, if you're trusting in Christ, if you're filled with Christ's spirit, then you can grow in holiness because God promises to work in you both to want to be holy and also to act in holy ways. Now at this point, though, our discussion has been largely abstract. We're called to work out our salvation personally, seriously, with effort, yet in dependence upon the Lord. But what does it look like in the specifics? Though verses uh, 12 and 13 are important uh, for constructing our understanding of holiness in the life of the Christian, Paul hasn't just put it there as sort of like a a theological uh, treatise that he just sort of wanted to write. He's got a very particular and practical reason for putting these verses here. This principle that we're called to work out what God works in, that's part of of a broader discussion that Paul's having. Paul's been talking about uh, the need to Uh, grow in sacrificial selfless service within the church. This is what he's talked about in in verses uh, 1 through 11. Paul's going to talk about that at the end of the chapter. He's going to say in humility serve one another. But Paul's not only concerned that such service would happen. He's also concerned about the attitude that accompanies it. And that's why he says do all things without grumbling or disputing. This is an expansive command. But Paul likely has in mind here, uh, very specifically, the attitude that the Philippians are to have while they're counting the needs of others as more significant than their own. And it can be really hard to do that. It can be easy to grumble and complain. Complaining already comes very naturally to us. In one sense, it feels good, right? We're just blowing off steam. Complaining is no new sin. Even Paul's reference here is meant to be an illusion, an echo of the Old Testament people of God as they're wandering around in the desert. Grumbling is a perennial, it's a habitual sin. Maybe uh, uh, that really resonates with you. But it can be especially hard when we're called to serve others. Because when your kid starts to cry in the middle of the night, uh, or your spouse requires uh, extra encouragement or care, or your boss is being unreasonable, or a church member is just acting foolishly, our unfiltered response is rarely, yes, this is an opportunity to serve. What a sweet providence. No, far more likely our response is uh, uh, just an exasperated sigh, uh, rubbing of the forehead. Uh, We mutter to our spouse as we walk out the door, I shouldn't have to deal with this. We complain. We complain. Disputing, which Paul adds in verse 14, is uh, related. And it's also likely uh, that Paul has in mind uh, the the Israelites in, in the desert. Because not only did the Israelites grumble and complain in the wilderness, but they also quarreled and argued and disputed with each other and with Moses. They griped and argued, like Aaron and Miriam with Moses in Numbers 12. They were quick to contend and argue and find fault. Why are we doing things this way? Why can't we do it differently? Uh, It would be so much better if you just, or why can't we sing the songs that I want uh, to sing? There's a way, of course, that these questions can uh, be appropriately asked, can be asked in a helpful way. But there's another way, I think we can recognize that, where uh, we're asking it and it's just the result of a bickering and quarrelsome spirit. So speaking to the church, Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. It's interesting that the immediate connection that Paul makes as he's talking about holiness is that it should play itself out in a glad-hearted service to others in the church. I think sometimes when we think of sanctification, uh, we think of, of, of certain uh, quote-unquote big sins. Okay, um, uh, But really, Paul, as he moves to, from sanct- uh, discussion of sanctification, the first application he makes is grumbling and complaining and in our service to one another. A mark of growing in holiness is complaining less and serving cheerfully. Paul himself is an example of this. Where is Paul as he's writing this letter? He's ministered sacrificially for the Philippians for the sake of the gospel, and he's imprisoned, and this is not a complaint letter. This is a letter filled with rejoicing. Even as he considers the personal cost of ministry to himself. Verse 17, he considers with gladness and rejoicing the possibility that his life might be poured out as a drink offering upon the offering of the Philippians' faith. He'd be glad to give his life for their spiritual well being. So as holiness increases, grumbling in our service toward one another decreases. And where this is happening, looking at verses 15 and 16, Paul expects that the Philippians would stand out. More precisely, they would shine in the midst of a sinful, dark, crooked world. As they clung to God's word, letting its commands and promises shape their life together, their blameless and pure conduct toward one another, it would stand out. Now, one of my favorite things to do when camping uh, is to go down to the lake when it's dark and just... Stare up at the sky, okay? So you're away from the light pollution and it's just awesome to see this black canvas uh, there and the night sky is dotted with thousands of of sparkling stars. There's this beautiful contrast, right, that's, that's formed there between the expanse of the darkened space and these burning stars and it grips my attention. Well, this, Paul says, is to be the effect of holiness as it changes our attitudes towards one another as it changes our attitudes toward uh, each other so that we're cheerfully, humbly serving one another. Our uncoerced service makes us sparkle as children of God in the midst of a pagan culture. Now, here at Harvest, we've talked about our desire to grow uh, as an outward-facing evangelistic church. We've got lots of room to grow in this regard. We're excited to bring uh, Pastor Adrian on board and to have someone give leadership uh, to thinking about how we can have a greater impact in our community and engage those around us. I'm excited to see training happen and things like backyard Bible clubs and and other opportunities to engage people in Wyoming and the Grand Rapids area. I'm, I'm ecstatic. But this text helps us to see that there's a connection between our holiness and our outreach. For God works in us to uh, to make us more holy, and as He does that, that will result in, among other things, a cheerful and loving service toward one another. And as He does that, in us individually and collectively, it'll make us stand out. It did in Paul's day, and it will do the same today. As we cheerfully sign up to bring a meal to a family in need and serve them in that way or as we uh, give a week to going on the youth mission trip uh, and ministering to other people's kids, or as we give up a Saturday to help someone in need in the church, as we open up our home for hospitality, and we do that without grumbling, without complaining, but cheerfully, humbly, that's going to stick out. We uh, We may seek to do more as we plan to reach out with the gospel, but we should not seek to do less. The gospel transforming us as persons, transforming us to love one another will be a testimony to the world. As we cling to our Bible, it will be a testimony that God is at work and we are his children. So, care about your growth in holiness. And specifically, care about your growing in holiness that doesn't look at others as a reason to grumble or to argue But see it as an opportunity to increasingly look more like Jesus as God works in you by his power to freely, to cheerfully serve others. That's a warm holiness to get excited about. We can get excited about that, and that will be eye-catching, and that will shine to the people around us. Let's pray. Father, as we think about this idea of sanctification, growth in holiness, of godliness, maybe we are tempted to think of things that are dry and dusty and cold and aloof. But that's not what we see in in these passages. That as Paul moves from his discussion on working out our salvation, of growing in holiness and godliness, he would immediately move toward a warm, loving, serving attitude toward the people around us. And so, God, we, as as you've already set your people apart for holiness, we pray that you would bring holiness to completion in us. Oh God, make the people of Harvest Church holy. Make us holy. It might seem difficult. It might seem like a stretch for for some of us uh, tonight but may we be encouraged by this promise that it is you who works in us, both to will and to work for your good pleasure. And we might may we pursue holiness because we desire to please you, and we desire to stand out so that people would see the life of Christ at work in our community. So please make us holy. We ask that you would do this work by your Holy Spirit, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand with me as we sing our closing song, Grace Unmeasured. blessing. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen.